Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 24, The Greco-Persian Wars. Last week, we went through the succession of Cyrus's sons and their questionable deaths that would eventually lead to the rise of Darius as the new king of kings. Early in Darius's reign, he had to put down several revolts across the empire. These revolts weren't attempts to install someone else on the throne, now that Darius sat upon it, but they were attempts to exit from the clutches of the empire entirely. Important to note that it's only nine years after Cyrus the Great's death. The Great Conqueror had proven his death in the realm, and was a hands-off ruler, allowing locals to attend to their own day-to-day politics. Many local royal dynasties had only not survived, but thrived under Cyrus's reign. As always, a regime change was a time of instability. Coupled with the death of Cambyses, the fake Bardia, or the real one if you believe it, all this left Darius on the throne, two rulers dead within a year, and many eyed their chance to regain their autonomy. Babylon in particular was a tough city to reconquer, with the siege of the city taking over a year and a half. Darius eventually retook the city, but he was insecure in his new position and sought to add some legitimacy to his rule. So up first, on the docket, was changing the genealogy. He claimed to be a relative of Cyrus the Great, sharing an ancestor. His three times great-grandfather, Achaemenes, which the name gave birth to the Achaemenid name. To further show up his position, he married Atusa, the daughter of Cyrus, wife of Cambyses and Bardia, and now Darius. When Darius dies, he will have two sons capable of inheriting the empire. But his younger son with Atusa, Xerxes, will become king. This was a shrewd move by Darius. He was aligning himself with the house of Cyrus, and his successor would be the grandson of the great conqueror. While we don't know much about Atusa, we can surmise she held incredible influence and power within the Persian court. As a daughter of Cyrus, wife of the second, third, and fourth kings, and mother of the fifth, you can assume she was a formidable woman in her own right, not to be outshone by her father, husbands, and son. Darius was forced to execute one of the men who had led the revolt against the fake Bardia, a man named Interfernes. The man had overstepped a boundary they had all agreed upon, with the seven men being able to visit Darius whenever they wished, aside from when he was attending to matters of state. And by matters of state, I mean the succession. And when I mean the succession, I mean they couldn't bother him while he was getting his freak on. But Interfernes tried anyways, and when he was rebuffed by the soldier standing guard, he allegedly cut their ears and noses off. The soldiers were brought to Darius, who was now scared another assassination was being concocted against him. He sent messages to the other men asking if they agreed with Interfernes' actions, and they all categorically disavowed him. Fearing further action from the man, Darius had Interfernes and his entire family executed, save for the man's wife, his wife's brother, and her son. Darius forced the wife to choose between her brother and son, and she chose her brother. Her reasoning being that she could have another husband and therefore another child, but she only had one brother who was irreplaceable. 
Darius, who liked this answer, let them all go free. Mom, if you're hearing this, please don't sacrifice me. And to my sister, if you're listening, please take notes. After this, all domestic problems had been dealt with, and Darius could now focus on gaining some of that sweet legitimacy for himself in earnest. The new king of kings would earn the legitimacy the old-fashioned way, and so he went a-conquering. Darius would expand the eastern borders all the way to the Indus Valley and around the Indus River. To the west, Darius conquered lands in Europe, waging war against the tribal Scythians crossing the Danube. Hey, that's the river the Goths cross in the Roman territory all the way back in episodes 1-3. to three. The Persians would also conquer Thrace and the northern regions of Greece, where the barbarians dwelled, like our lovable Macedonians. The control of these regions became disputed, but that only occurred during the first invasion of Greece, which is just around the corner. Before we get to a seminal event that many people think could have changed the course of Western history, let's talk about Darius just a bit more. Darius is the first Persian king that we have more than just a thumbnail sketch to work with. Darius not only conquered lands, but was an excellent administrator as well, handling the monotonous routine of empire. Many sources describe him as a shopkeeper, which may or may not be a pejorative. Many wealthy people disdain this blue-collar mindset, with the wealth and luxury coming from land. Imagine having to work for your money. This gives us an insight, though, into the way Darius viewed running his empire. He ran a fiscally responsible show and used money as a tool, seeing how it could provide for the deficits that the empire may have had. Let's use the navy as an example. Persia had no standing navy technically. They relied upon the Phoenicians, Egyptians, and Ionian Greeks to provide the ships, the rowers, and the expertise. Instead of building a brand new navy, training men, and gaining the requisite experience needed, it was simply much easier just to pay the people with all three. I like the way Dan Carlin refers to Darius. Instead of calling him a shopkeeper, he calls him a CEO. Because he's not really a shopkeeper, is he? He's the king of kings, running an empire. Now, for the part everyone is waiting for. How did the war between Greece and Persia start? It all starts with the Greek cities on the Ionian coast. In 499, a rebellion broke out in the region where Lydia's old kingdom once ruled. The rebellion saw aid from Athens and Eritrea, and the city of Sardis, the regional capital, was sacked and burned to the ground. This was the culmination of the rebellion's success. By 493 BC, Darius crushed the revolt fiercely, and without major aid from the city-states of Athens, there would be no chance of victory for the rebellion. In fact, Athens and Eritrea had provoked the wrath of Darius. Herodotus records that Darius ordered a servant every day at dinner to remind him of the Athenians, repeating the phrase, Master, remember the Athenians, three times at every dinner. Darius did not want to forget the anger he felt against the Athenians and Eritreans. This leads us to our first point of contact. In 490, Darius sent out a force to punish those who had wronged him, sending two generals out to the task. 
They began by conquering the Cyclades and landing on the island of Euboea, where Eritrea was located. The Persians captured the city of Eritrea and soon after sacked the city. That was one out of the two troublemakers now dealt with. The Persians now landed their force in Attica, close to the city of Marathon. Athens sought Spartan help, but the deeply religious Spartans were in the middle of a religious festival and could not send aid until the full moon, approximately in 10 days. The Athenians mustered 9,000 hoplites, and the only other city to aid them were Plataea, who sent them 1,000 men. They now armored 10,000 heavily armed and armored hoplites. At this point in history, Athens' democracies was still young, only 20 years old at the time, and as a result of that, they sent 10 generals to lead their forces to represent each of the 10 tribes of Athens. One man stood among the others, though. His name was Miltiades. Miltiades had served as a city commander in Ionia under Darius for a number of years before returning to Athens after falling out with the king of kings. He had knowledge of the Persian army and its tactics, and as such, had valuable experience. The Persians outnumbered the combined Greek forces at least two to one, and more importantly, they had cavalry while the Greeks did not. The two forces stared down at one another, not wanting to engage in a pitched battle yet. The Greeks held a strongly fortified position in the hills, covering both their flanks, negating the Persian advantage with cavalry. For the Greeks' part, they could hardly give up their strong position to engage with the enemy and become targets for the enemy cavalry. Thus, a stare-down ensued, which worked out well for the Greeks just fine. Every day that passed made their position stronger and the Persians' position weaker. You'd think the Athenians would just return behind the city walls at this point, but political intrigue was rearing its ugly head. There was a pro-Persian faction within the city who would be happy to give the city to the Persians in exchange for peace and power. If the Athenians wanted their freedom, they would need to take it by waiting the Persians out or by battle. In the end, the Greeks forced the battle. The Persian cavalry had either re-embarked on their ships or was now foraging, giving the Greek infantry its opportunity. The Persians had lightly armed spearmen and tons of archers, but the archers could not make a dent in the Greek formation. Unlike the other enemies Persia had faced, the Greeks fought in close order ranks and were heavily armored. The Persian arrows unable to penetrate the army, the Greeks won the battle and forced the Persians to retreat back to their ships and sail away in defeat. News of this defeat only served to enrage Darius further, who immediately began to gather another large army to invade. This time, Darius would lead it personally. But Darius' invasion would hit two snags. The first being that in 486, Egypt would revolt against the empire. And the second snag was that Darius himself died. That's right. After 36 years of rule, Darius would die at the age of 64. The first king to die of natural causes that we are 100% sure of in the Akinuid dynasty. 
Darius' successor was his son Xerxes. But the character of the man we see in the movie 300 is not the man that he is either. I am also here to apologize because unlike in the movie 300, the Spartans did not fight in just speedos, a cape, their spears, swords, and shields. I know. I know. I was also heartbroken when I learned this. It would take Xerxes a few years to quell the Egyptian situation, and it would not be until 480 that Persia would launch the second invasion of Greece. The Persian forces, according to Herodotus, numbered over 3 million. Their arrows blotted out the sun. They drank lakes dry, and all that good stuff. In actuality, modern estimates have brought the range down to 70,000 at the lowest, and 300,000 at the highest which for this time was an insane amount of soldiers. It also shows the logistical capabilities of the Persian state. To march and sail that many men, keep them fed and in good health to fight on enemy soil is quite the achievement. The Persian engagement began with two battles, one on land and one on sea. The naval battle was at Artemisium, and while it ended in a tactical draw, the Allied Greeks withdrew. For while they matched the Persians in ferocity, defeating equal amounts of ships, it was the Persians who could sustain the greater losses. And so, the Greeks had to retreat. The land battle is probably the most famous of all Greek battles, and it was fought at Thermopylae. The Persian land forces had come down through northern Greece, and to reach central Greece, they had to cross through the mountain paths at Thermopylae, much like Philip II did almost 150 years later. Unlike the Macedonians, the Persians had overwhelming numbers and were able to push through after a week of heavy fighting. This is where the movie 300 takes place. With the group of 300 Spartans fighting against the Persian horde, valiantly holding them off for as long as possible. The Spartans did not fight alone at this critical junction, but allied with the Thebans and Thespians, numbering a force of 7,000. Further not mentioned were the Helots, slaves in Spartan society. And there were numbers claiming seven Helots for every one Spartan. Despite Sparta refusing a submission a year prior when asked to offer earth and water, which gave us the iconic, this is Sparta moment. Xerxes again, before battle, offered them another chance, telling them to lay down their arms and submit. Here's where we get the famous Spartan phrase, Mola Nabe, famously translated as come and take them. I'm also not really sure how to pronounce that in Greek, so I'm just reading it phonetically, so if anyone here speaks Greek and can tell me how it's actually said, let me know, and I apologize for my pronunciation. The battle now began in earnest, and it would take a week of hard fighting before the Persians broke through. The Greeks being betrayed by a farmer named Ephialtes, who told the Persians of a secret pass to flank the Greek forces. The force of Greeks began to retreat with the Spartans and the others as the rearguard, with the rearguard being annihilated. The movie 300 portrays this as a Pyrrhic victory for the Persians, as they would be defeated by the combined Greek forces not long after. This isn't exactly true. 
The Persians would be defeated a year later at the engagements of Salamis and Plataea. But for that year, the Persians had overrun much of Greece, and Athens was destroyed. In fact, a year later, at the decisive battle of Plataea, Xerxes had already returned to Persia, leaving his general Mardonius in charge. Mardonius was the son of Gabrias, the man who had wrestled the fake Bardia to the ground before Darius killed him. Mardonius would die at the Battle of Plataea, and it was this death that would end the Persian invasion. The Persian invasions had been a retaliatory endeavor for their aid to the Ionian Greeks. And, the subsequent invasion by Xerxes, while it ended in a Persian defeat, could still claim a strategic victory. Destroying Athens and Plataea and Eritrea, overrunning much of Greece. As a villain, Xerxes comes off as a megalomaniacal despot, obsessed with his own godhood in the movie 300. That's not really the case, though. It is true that Xerxes lived a more decadent lifestyle than his predecessors. But he was ruling an empire at its height in territorial zenith. By all accounts, he was a diligent ruler, capably administrating the empire, and when it came to military affairs, he oversaw the pacification of Egypt and the invasion of Greece, two wars that he had inherited rather than starting himself personally. After the war, Xerxes engaged in many public works projects, building palaces and roads and maintaining the all-important royal road. Sadly, in the end, Xerxes was assassinated in 465 after ruling for 21 years. He was killed by the captain of his royal bodyguard, who planned a coup for the top spot. He had Xerxes' eldest son Darius also killed, but the royal captain planning to have Xerxes' other son, Artaxerxes, killed, planned it out with the wrong general, who betrayed the plot to Artaxerxes. The new king of kings had him executed and ruled for a whopping 41 years. The Persian posture towards Greece during the reign of Artaxerxes changed from an outright hostile position to using the vast resources at the empire's disposal to fund conflicts against the city-states wonder if anyone does that now. Anyways, and this was evidently clear during the destructive Peloponnesian War that Greece found itself embroiled in. Persia also began hiring Greek mercenaries after seeing their effectiveness firsthand after fighting the imposing hoplite armies. After Artaxerxes' death in 424, another bloody succession followed. Xerxes II became king, but then was killed 45 days later by his half-brother Sogdianus. Sogdianus took control of the empire, ruling for six months, before he was killed by his half-brother Darius II, who may have been an illegitimate child of Artaxerxes. Power politics can be such a deadly game. Darius II ruled for 19 years and aided the Spartans vigorously against the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War. The Persians funded a navy for the Spartans to defeat the Athenians. His death in 404 preceded the end of the Peloponnesian War in 405, with the Athenian defeat at Agospotami. However, once again, the Persians entered another destructive civil war. Darius II's eldest son, Artaxerxes II, became king, but his brother, Cyrus the Younger, 
rebelled against his brother for the throne. It's at this battle that Xenophon's famous Anabasis originates from. The 10,000 Greeks fighting for the usurper Cyrus the Younger and their harrowing journey to escape the hostile empire after Cyrus' subsequent death in battle. Once stability returned to Persia, Artaxerxes II ruled for 46 years, which I believe makes him the longest ruling king of kings in the Achaemenid dynasty. The biggest note of his rule, aside from the civil war, is the revolt of Egypt, which he could not restore back to the empire before his death. His death is disputed between 359 or 358, which brings us to the beginning of Philip's reign in Macedon. Artaxerxes' son, Artaxerxes III, ruled for 20 or 21 years, depending on when his father died. He was able to regain Egypt and pacify the region again. But he was assassinated by his court eunuch, who had him poisoned in 338. The eunuch also had Artaxerxes III's eldest sons killed as well, placing the young child Arces on the throne, but he ruled as Artaxerxes IV. It was this instability that Philip had eyed and found his time to launch his invasion of Persia with. Arces ruled for two years until he was dispatched of by the eunuch. The eunuch then had a distant relative of the Achaemenids placed on the throne. But this man ended up consolidating power under himself and ruling as Darius III. He had the eunuch killed, protecting himself, and began his undisputed rule in 336. At the same time, Macedonia also experienced political turmoil as Philip II was killed and Alexander became king in the same year as Darius. It placed the two men on a collision course of destiny. Darius III would become the last king of the Achaemenid dynasty, ruling from 336 until 330 BC. Alexander will swallow up the entirety of the Persian Empire and continue on to India. When he died in 323, his inheritors of the empire would split the fractious empire into pieces, with Seleucus beginning the Seleucid dynasty. The Seleucids would encompass the majority of the territory of the old Persian empire. When the Seleucids were destroyed by the Parthians and Romans, the Parthian kingdom encompassed the territory of the old Persians up to the boundaries of the Euphrates River. From 247 BC until 224 AD, the Parthians ruled, when, in a repeat of history like Cyrus all those years ago, a king, under the king of kings, led his province in revolt and crushed the old dynasty, creating the Sassanid Empire, which rules from 224 to 651 AD. This last great Persian empire was the last of antiquity, because not long after, the Arabs are going to come out of the desert and begin their crazy rise to power. That's it for the Persian perspective for the most part. I'll fill us all in as Alexander invades the Persian Empire as how the Persians were thinking and feeling. But we will be back to our narrative next week. I hope you enjoyed this quick little mini-series on the Achaemenids. There's plenty to talk about and we could have taken this much slower and gone on for much longer. But I'm excited to begin Alexander's reign. It's going to be a jam-packed 13 years of narrative, and I hope you're ready for it. 
because I've been anticipating this for a while now. In many ways, Philip was just the prelude to this grand epic, which I think sums up the way many people look at Philip in general. What Philip accomplished in his time as king was nothing short of remarkable, and had he not been succeeded by Alexander, we could easily be calling Philip the greatest Macedonian king ever. But, in a way he is. Alexander's conquests will stretch Macedonia's borders all the way to the Indus River, changing Macedonia from a Greek kingdom into a multi-ethnic empire. But, we'll start to get into all of that next week, so we'll leave it here for now. Like always, if you like what you heard, give the podcast five stars in review. I'll have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history, and you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. Follow me on Twitter at History Pinpoint, and you can find me on Facebook as well. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.